Well, uh, welcome very, uh, to everybody here to uh, the um, series of lectures that we're putting on at the Centre for Economic Performance. Uh, my name is John Van Rien, I'm the director of the CEP, and uh, the lectures to celebrate 21 years of the Centre. Um, and I'm delighted tonight to have Peter Orzak with us to uh, deliver the fifth in our series of lectures. Um, Peter is currently the Vice Chairman of Global Banking at Citigroup, but uh, I'm sure, as most of you know, uh, his, uh, his fame precedes him in that. Uh, he has been the, uh, one of the leading economists in the world, um, working at the highest level, and particularly most recently under President Obama, um, being the kind of uh, guiding light for the healthcare reforms. Um, it, you know, in his, in, in, uh, particularly in his role in the OMB, the Office of Management and Budgets, that uh, the President, uh, as soon as he was elected almost, nominated Peter for, uh, and previously in the Congressional Budget Office uh, from January 2007. Um, so in, in that role, Peter's had this major impact on healthcare, which he's going to speak about, but he was also um, had a major role in the financial crisis and dealing with the Great Recession um, in that in, you know, incredibly important moment, which uh, I hope we'll talk about maybe afterwards as well. Anyway, without further ado, I'd like to uh, uh, welcome Peter. I should mention one other thing that, of course, Peter did his undergraduate at Princeton, but did his uh, MSc and his PhD at the LSE, and in fact was a research economist in the Centre for Economic Performance, working with Richard Layard, uh, actually in the days of Russian transition. So he has uh, some history with the Centre. So welcome, Peter, and I look forward to hearing your talk. Thank you all. I'm delighted to be back at LSE. I actually uh, really quite deeply enjoyed my time both uh, in the MSc program and then subsequently uh, in Russia with uh, Richard Laird and uh, then in finishing up my PhD and uh, I think I got a great education here. So for those of you who are students here, I, uh, I hope you have as good an experience as I had. What I'd like to do is talk to you about uh, the health reform in the United States and uh, its impact especially on the quality and cost of health services delivered. And this is not just a fiscal question, but actually is a core problem facing the United States across a whole array of areas. As an example, I'm gonna, I'll turn to the fiscal dimension in a second, but since I'm at an academic institution, if you look in the United States at public and private universities, 20 years ago, starting assistant professor salaries at Berkeley and Stanford, for example, were about the same, or at Rice and UT Austin were about the same. If you look at comparison schools, they were roughly at parity. Today, the starting assistant professor salaries at the public universities are about 15 to 20 percent lower than at the privates. A key reason is that in state budgets, Medicaid, which is the program that the state governments co-finance with the federal government in the United States, those costs have been rising rapidly. The reaction is then to try to offset that increase in part of the budget by cutting back on state appropriations for higher education. 20 years ago, state appropriations for higher education were twice as important to public university budgets as tuition. 
So if you cut state appropriations by 30%, you'd have to raise tuition by 60% to offset it. That's not going to happen from a political economy perspective. The result has been that spending per student at public universities, because of the pressure from Medicaid constraining state government support for higher education, has uh, caused spending per student at public universities to decline relative to privates, despite significant increases in tuition. So middle class families, three quarters of whom send their kids to public universities rather than privates, are facing a double bind in a sense because tuition's rising, but if uh, starting assistant professor salaries are a leading indicator of future quality, there's also a quality difference that's opening up that is harmful and that is being caused ultimately by rising healthcare costs. So let me try to calibrate, um, as soon as I get this working, uh, let me just start talking and hopefully the slides will arrive. Um, let me try to do this without slides, and then I'll fill in the slides uh, as, uh, as they appear. Uh, in the United States, if you uh, go out to 2050, the problem that we face is primarily a healthcare one from a fiscal perspective. Between now and 2050, Social Security costs are expected to rise, Social Security being the pension system in the United States, from 5% of GDP to 6. Medicare and Medicaid and other federal expenditures on health care are projected to rise from 55 to 12. That is basically the entire growth in the federal budget in the United States. And just because I'm going to be talking more about it, and since I'm not in the United States, Medicare is, as you know, the program that uh, finances uh, health care for the elderly and the disabled in the United States. Medicaid is a program that uh, finances health care mostly for the poor. Medicare is financed entirely by the federal government. Medicaid is split between the federal government and state governments. It's also the case, uh, oh, okay. We'll pause for a programming break. <laughs> okay, so this chart just shows you what I just said. If you look at the light part of the curve, you can see that Medicare and Medicaid costs are growing, going up substantially more than the dark part of the curve which is Social Security costs. Basically, in a nutshell, in addition to the effects on public universities that I mentioned, in addition to rising healthcare costs being a constraining force on after-tax take-home pay for families, they are the single most important determinant of our long-term fiscal future, period. Everything else is effectively rounding noise relative to the rate at which healthcare costs grow. Second observation, before we get to uh, sort of the policy perspective, second observation is that healthcare costs in different parts of the U.S. system tend over long periods of time to rise at roughly the same rates as in other components. So for example, if you look over a three or four decade period, take the bottom part, uh, 75 to 2005, the rate at which Medicare costs, Medicaid costs, and all other healthcare costs rose this, these are costs per beneficiary relative to income per capita, they tended to rise at about the same rates. Now, there are sub-periods where one will rise more rapidly than another, uh, but over long periods of time, they tend to track each other. And that is not surprising because uh, doctors are seeing Medicare and non-Medicare patients. The various forces that affect costs uh, are spread throughout the healthcare system. 
And it would almost be surprising if, especially after you adjusted for age and health status, there were significant differences in the rate at which costs grow. So the point just being, this is a system-wide issue and not just a Medicare or Medicaid alone issue. And indeed, approaches that try to address the problem solely by pushing down Medicare costs without affecting practice in the rest of the health system are ultimately not sustainable, and I'll come back to that in a moment. There's been a lot of work done, uh, none of which is completely conclusive, and in fact I was just given some uh, new work uh, this afternoon on comparing the United States to other countries. Uh, I think the best way of characterizing that evidence is everyone wants to look for one smoking gun. Uh, it's that uh, doctor salaries are higher in the United States and that's why healthcare costs relative to GDP are higher, or pharmaceutical costs prices are higher in the United States relative to other countries, or pick your favorite uh, explanation. And most of the evidence suggests that the excess costs are spread throughout the healthcare system. That's what this chart is showing. And so there's no one single source of, of the difference. And indeed, you know, for example, with regard to pharmaceutical spending, even because that's often uh, cited, in the United States, pharmaceutical spending is something like 10% of total healthcare spending. So it would be kind of surprising if that were the entire explanation for differences in healthcare costs between the United States and other countries. Another factoid or dimension of the issue is the huge variation that we see in the United States across regions, across hospitals within a region, and even across doctors within a hospital in healthcare costs per beneficiary, basically. So this map shows you different parts of the United States with the darker red parts of the country having higher Medicare spending per capita than the lighter areas. And you can immediately see these are not trivial differences. You're talking about 30, 40, and sometimes even larger percentage uh, differences between the higher spending areas and the lower spending areas. There's been a lot of work done by a group at Dartmouth in particular trying to explain this variation. And every time I give a talk, someone comes up with a new one. I was giving a talk a couple months ago and someone uh, thought that this was correlated with cloud cover on particular days uh, in the United <laughs> States. Um, the researchers that have tried their best to control for the health status of the population, for the cost of building hospitals in different areas, for all the various control variables that you can throw in there, have succeeded in narrowing the variation somewhat, but a substantial amount of variation still persists. So in particular, we have an institution in the United States called the Medicare Payment Advisory Committee. Uh, they just came out with a report earlier this year that uh, I think is state-of-the-art in trying to control for all the various adjustments that one would want to use to try to explain this kind of variation across different parts of the United States. Uh, the spending numbers are basically just that graph that I showed you before, uh, the, the, the country, the raw spending deltas. What they called service differences were after controlling for all the things that you would want to control for, health status, demographics, cost of building hospitals, so on and so forth. And I think the key takeaway here is after controlling for everything, you reduce the variation a bit, but the bulk of it persists. And so uh, to the best of our ability, 
we have huge unexplained variation across the United States in healthcare costs per beneficiary. Furthermore, this is Medicare. So this is not, basically to a first approximation, there's some small differences, but Medicare basically pays the same price per service in different areas of the country. So this is not price variation, this is intensity or quantity variation that's driving this Medicare variation. Now the kicker is, this is where we get a little bit dicier because the data here are particularly bad, but if you look at quality indicators, if anything, the best indications we have suggest that the higher spending regions in the United States and the higher spending hospitals within a region do not generate better outcomes than the lower spending hospitals and the lower spending regions. And if anything, the simple correlation goes the wrong way, which is what this curve shows. I don't think you need to go to that extreme, but there are at least significant questions raised about uh, whether in exchange for the higher spending, we're actually getting higher quality or better outcomes. All of which raises the important question of why, why is this happening? What is driving this variation and what's causing it? Because if we can't understand that, we're not going to have very much hope of narrowing it. And let me just immediately say, the reason that it's interesting to focus on the variation is uh, it opens up the possibility that we can have a much better cost quality trade-off to the extent that the higher cost regions are not generating better outcomes than the lower spending ones. It opens up at least the possibility that we can get more for our healthcare dollars and or get the same outcomes at lower cost. And that does seem to be replicated within hospital settings also where uh, hospitals have succeeded in reducing cost without harming outcomes. And I'll talk more about that in a bit. But why is this happening? This curve basically separate, or this chart separates different types of health services. And if you were on that, let me try to explain this a little bit. If you were on that 1.00 line, the map would all be the same color. There'd be no variation across the United States in the intensity of services provided. If you're to the right uh, of uh, the 1.00 curve, the more to the right you are, the more that color variation would come out, the more there is variation in costs per beneficiary. Now here's the key thing. Where it's entirely clear what should happen and there's good evidence in favor of it, there's not that much variation. So uh, administering an aspirin for someone who has suffered a heart attack when they're admitted to the hospital, basically now everyone does that. There's not a lot of variation. In other areas where it's much less clear what should happen, there's a lot more variation. So in evaluation and management visits, you get discharged from the hospital, and uh, what is the marginal benefit of going back to see your doctor for the third time instead of the second time in a month? Very little information on that kind of question. Uh, imaging and diagnostic tests. And I've actually done this with doctors who uh, then don't want to see me again. Um, what is the, you know, a doctor in the United States says, uh, your knee hurts, we've done these other tests, you need an MRI. And I, I like to ask the question, what is the probability that, this, that doing that is going to change your diagnosis? And in most cases, the doctor, after if they uh, are willing to sort of play in that space, which many of them aren't, um, say, you know, frankly, we can't really answer that question quantitatively. I don't know. The study hasn't been done to tell me in, in what share of the cases. And I can tell you my personal experience, and it's sort of impressionistic, 
but there's a lot more variation in those kinds of settings. And what I, this is what uh, Zeke Emanuel has called, a colleague of mine, has called, uh, it's just the way we do it here in medicine. And so he had the experience of, after coming out of medical school, working at one hospital, being transferred to another hospital, and having the uh, threshold for the application of a particular test for patients being dramatically different in the second hospital. Much, much uh, more of the test being done. And he said, well, I just came from a hospital where there was a much different, we, we would not administer this test, we wouldn't, in this example, uh, give an MRI to that kind of patient. Why are we doing that? And the answer was, that's just the way we do it here. In the lack, given the lack of an evidence base for particular procedures, there's a huge amount of variation in how healthcare is practiced. And then we have a payment system that facilitates that variation. So if you adopt a more intense approach, you will get paid for that intensity. So you have every incentive to, to adopt it. And the result is that we have a huge amount of variation across the United States, particularly in those areas where we have the least clue what should or could be done. And I'll come back again to that framing in a moment. All right, so the basic problem here is healthcare costs are causing a fundamentally unstable long-term fiscal trajectory. They are affecting lives in huge uh, numbers of ways from public universities to uh, take-home pay. And the quality is not what anyone would want in terms of, uh, for example, if you compare the US and the UK, uh, life expectancy or mortality rates, uh, even controlling for socioeconomic status in the UK are better than in the US. And there's suggestive evidence uh, uh, linking late, later in life, life expectancy to uh, earlier childhood disease and how it's treated in the US versus the UK. But the fact of the matter is, uh, our outcomes are not commensurate with are spending. So there's both a spending problem and a quality problem. What can, we do, what can be done? Uh, there are basically four conceptual approaches, especially focused on uh, the cost component, although given the possibly inverse correlation between cost and quality, uh, you can imagine trying to address both of them simultaneously. The first approach is that you can just reduce how much you pay per procedure. So you ratchet down, for example, in Medicare, how much you pay a doctor or hospital for that MRI or for whatever a doctor does. Uh, this is a blunt and temporarily effective approach to reducing healthcare spending, especially by the federal government. Uh, but ultimately, it's not a sustainable course because if all you did is reduce prices paid within Medicare, you would succeed in uh, reducing cost for Medicare for some period of time, but if you don't affect, coming back to the chart I put up about overall healthcare spending, if you're not affecting the way that healthcare is practiced overall, all you're going to succeed in doing is create access problems for Medicare beneficiaries as hospitals and doctors become increasingly reluctant to see them because the price paid per patient is much lower than in other parts of the health system. And secondly, most of the suggestive evidence in the United States suggests that there's cost shifting that occurs as you press down on Medicare spending, Medicare prices, it's offset in other components of the health system. So that, this is not ultimately a sustainable answer. 
The second approach, which does get at the core issue, which is the intensity of services provided, uh, is direct rationing, a hard on-off switch. The following services are not covered and will not be, uh, are not possible. Um, the problem with that in the United States, even if it were desirable, which is highly debatable, is it's not even remotely politically viable. So I'm not even going to pay any attention to it and just move right past it. <laughs> The third approach, which is very popular among Republicans in the United States, or conservatives, is what's called consumer-directed health care. And the theory of the case here is that the core problem driving this rapid increase in health care spending is the, lack of, is the presence of third-party insurance and the lack of consumer skin in the game. And I should immediately say that more consumer cost-sharing would help to reduce costs. There is a large body of literature starting with the RAND experiment in the 1970s suggesting that more cost sharing does help to reduce cost. But I'd also say that this is held out as the leading thing to do or the primary step to take. And from that perspective I think it is dramatically oversold. And the reason is that even under consumer directed health approaches where you're going to have more skin in the game for consumers you are always going to provide deep third-party insurance against high costs. That is the whole purpose of insurance. So in the United States, we have something called the health savings account where consumers can save money up and they, they basically pay for their health care themselves up to some threshold. And then beyond that, they have uh, catastrophic third-party insurance. So the first observation is even under consumer-directed health, the, the high-cost cases are going to be covered by third-party insurance, which is, again, completely understandable from an insurance uh, perspective. The second observation is, in healthcare, the high-cost cases are the whole ballgame. So, in particular, if you take Medicare beneficiaries and you rank them by their cost, you get this chart. The top 5% of Medicare beneficiaries, if you align them by cost, account for more than 40% of total Medicare costs. The top 25% of Medicare beneficiaries account for more than 85% of Medicare costs. Consumer-directed approaches have their biggest effect <coughs> on the other 75% of beneficiaries, but they only account for 15% of total costs. So you don't have as much traction as you might think, primarily because you're not really getting at what drives those high-cost cases. This is one reason why you may have read about the budget plan that Representative Paul Ryan of Wisconsin has put forward in the United States. It's generating a lot of debate. Um, it is uh, proving to be, I think, politically unpopular for Republicans. But what I want to talk about is its substance, not its politics. The substance of it is to move towards this sort of consumer-directed approach for Medicare itself. And what's interesting is that the Congressional Budget Office has analyzed the plan. And what it found was, and basically under this plan, instead of getting the Medicare benefit where a Medicare is paying for your health care, you would get a fixed sum of money with which you could purchase insurance, preferably of the health savings account kind of approach. So you'd have a lot of cost sharing up to some threshold and then deep third-party insurance beyond that. Not surprisingly, because the amount that you get from the federal government is indexed to inflation and not health care costs, the plan reduces federal costs. Not surprisingly, it raises consumer costs. That's the whole point. 
But what's shocking is the whole purpose of that shift is to reduce the total, federal plus consumer combined. And what the Congressional Budget Office found instead was that total costs go up, not down. And let me try to break this down for you a little bit. Uh, this is for 2022. The difference has become even larger by 2030. You can see under current, uh, the blue part of the curve, or of those lines, is what uh, most of the discussion focuses on, which is that federal expenditures go down. In this case, from $8,600 to $8,000 for the typical 65-year-old beneficiary. Uh, the red part shows that beneficiary costs go up. That's not surprising because you're shifting more cost onto them on purpose. Here's what's shocking, though. Look at the, the combined total. The combined total is supposed to go down, so it should be lower than $14,750, which is spending per beneficiary under the current Medicare system. Instead, it goes up and by a lot. And the reason that CBO concluded this was that you have one effect, which is what I just mentioned, the behavioral response, but that is a modest effect because of what I also mentioned, which is that you've got limited traction because you're applying it to a small share of total cost. And against that, you have higher administrative costs through private insurance plans and less negotiating power than Medicare itself has with hospitals and doctors. And those two latter effects dominate. So this is kind of a shocking conclusion because by 2030, uh, CBO found that healthcare costs per beneficiary would be 40% higher under the Ryan plan than under uh, current Medicare. So what I've been trying to say is that Republican policymakers seem torn because they think it's bad politics but good substance, and actually it's not good substance either. <laughs> well, that's the third approach. And let me immediately say also, you can redesign a consumer-directed approach so that it can be helpful as a sort of secondary measure, but again, it doesn't get a best case scenario, it's not really get, even if it avoids a cost increase, it's not really getting at the driver of the of overall costs, which are those high cost cases. And that leads us to the final category, which is getting at those high cost cases. And there are sort of two components. One is trying to prevent them in the first place. And the second is what happens after you're already in the healthcare system, you're in a chronic kind of situation. These high cost cases are disproportionately driven by di diabetes and hypertension and other chronic conditions. And the th my thesis is that in those high-cost settings, in those high-cost uh, conditions, once you've entered the health system with them, the health care that's delivered is basically what the provider recommends. So separate two things. One is trying to prevent them in the first place, and there are a whole variety of interventions uh, that may help, although no conclusive evidence on what exactly does help uh, from a policy perspective to reduce these high-cost cases in the first place from a prevention and wellness perspective, but we could talk more about that. Once you've got the condition and you're in the healthcare system, the healthcare that's delivered is what the doctor's recommending. I actually just had a, a personal experience where uh, in an ICU, in my family, we have uh, two PhDs and we have access to lots of outside medical advice. We had a very complex medical uh, situation. The fact of the matter is the healthcare that was delivered to my father was, despite all of that, the PhDs and the access to outside doctors and what have you, was what the doctor on the ground was recommending. He said do X, we did X. The next day she said do Y, we wound up doing Y. And that, if you combine those two observations, that the high cost cases are the key, 
and that in those high-cost cases, the care that's delivered is basically what the provider is recommending. The conclusion is you're not going to really get at health care costs unless you're affecting what the provider is recommending, especially for those high-cost cases. Everything else is kind of rounding noise, and unless you're doing that, you're not affecting any of the key other key issues that I mentioned early on. So the question is then, how do you do that? And I think uh, there are two reinforcing things that need to happen, and then I'm going to try to describe what is happening along both of these dimensions. The first is we need a much better flow of information and best practices for those providers. In, my, in the situation I just gave you, again, the, the, the probability that doing this course of action versus that course of action would, would or would not uh, improve the ICU uh, conditions or the condition of the patient in the ICU. That involves a lot more data, and that involves much better use of the data than we currently have in the U.S. health system. So in particular, uh, over the next five or ten years, we have the opportunity to create a much better feedback loop from health IT systems, I'll describe that in, more in a moment, to what we call comparative effectiveness research, and which is done uh, in the UK and elsewhere uh, a bit more than is done in the United States, uh, back on to the clinical decision support software built into the IT system. I would love in five or ten years to be able to go to my doctor and have the doctor have basically sort of pop-up suggestions on a tablet. This is a, you know, this kind of patient you should ask about or you might want to check on and so on and so forth. The complexity of medicine has gotten to such a point that the, uh, what Atul Gawande calls the cowboy method of writing off yourself and solving all problems no longer works. We need to accept, medical professionals need to accept the com computer-assisted and other team effects that can help guide decision-making in a much better way. I put uh, medical malpractice down there in the bottom because that could reinforce this feedback loop. If I went to my doctor in five or ten years in the United States and a set of suggestions popped up, and the doctor also knew that following those suggestions would protect him or her from liability under malpractice laws, that would drive a lot more behavior towards the best practice protocols than exist today. This was, I put it in red because I think this was one of the biggest gaps in the health reform bill that was just passed in the United States. I'm going to talk more about the health reform bill in a moment, but uh, this basically wasn't in there. And that's unfortunate because uh, the medical malpractice system we have in the United States, let me, let me just pause on this for a second because uh, it's interesting. The academic literature and practitioners on this topic vary dramatically. Every practitioner in the United States says tort reform and medical malpractice is the key to what's driving this variation and rising costs. Pretty much every study suggests it has almost no effect. There have been a couple recent studies suggesting slightly larger effects, but most of them suggest almost nothing, especially in terms of that cross-sectional variation. So if you go back to that map that I showed and you try to then correlate the cost per beneficiary to the stringency of the malpractice systems in different states in the United States or different uh, parts of states, there's basically no correlation. This is an example, though, where I think the academic literature is just off. And the reason I think it's off is, let's take that correlation, uh, the, the cross-sectional evidence. The whole problem in the United States malpractice system is the basis upon which it is predicated is, called, is a customary practice norm. So uh, you have to do 
you have to be following customary practice in order to be exempt from liability. Customary practice isn't defined anywhere. It's this nebulous concept. It leads to doctors adopting what other local doctors are doing because that defines customary practice. To the extent that that's true, try, the, the strength of that social contagion may not be that importantly affected by whether the stringency of the malpractice law is a little bit tighter or a little bit looser in a state. There still is that kind of contagion. So it still, I think, is the case that the malpractice system, in addition to the payment system, is reinforcing the spreading of social norms in some areas towards more intense approaches and in other areas towards less intense approaches and causing that variation that we've seen or reinforcing it, even though most of the academic studies suggest it's not doing that. What we should do instead in the United States is move away from customary practice and towards an evidence-based safe harbor. Basically, if you are following an evidence-based protocol put forward by a medical professional body, I shouldn't be able to sue you, period. That would drive a lot more clarity in the system and a lot more adoption of uh, evidence-based medicine than what we have today. The second component, other than that information flow, involves the payment system and delivery uh, structure. And I'm going to talk uh, a little bit more about that after I fill in the first part of the, that reinforcing cycle. There's a lot happening on this first cycle. Unfortunately, not on medical malpractice, but in other areas. We are going to have in the United States a much more IT intense health sector in five or 10 years than we have today. And that is a prediction that has been made repeatedly over the past uh, 10 to 20 years, but I'm willing to now uh, make it myself. And the reason is the technology has evolved so that it's uh, less intrusive for a doctor to use a tablet than a laptop. There are payment uh, subsidies and fees built into law now, subsidies for several years and then penalties for not adopting health information technology. And you can sense a much growing moment, sense of momentum in this space in the United States. So we're going to have that first component of the health IT systems much higher penetration rates than currently exist. Second component is comparative effectiveness research, researching what works and what doesn't, the probability that that MRI will affect uh, outcomes or will affect uh, the diagnosis. And there is money flowing into that area also, although this has become highly politicized in the United States. And if anyone's interested in that, uh, I'd be happy to answer questions about it. We basically, though, have the building blocks for a lot of that feedback loop from information to uh, better research, back to best practice protocols built into clinical decision support software over the next five to 10 years. So what about the other component, the payment system and uh, the financial incentives facing doctors? And here the problem is we have lots of interesting ideas about how to pay for quality and move towards a more outcome-focused system rather than paying for intensity. Right now we have a fee-for-service system where we pay for every test that's done. And almost everyone agrees that we need to move towards a system where we're paying for better outcomes rather than just more healthcare. The problem is no one knows exactly how to do that. And so there are a lot of ideas floating around. Accountable care organizations are uh, uh, an attempt to bind hospitals and doctors together so that they are jointly responsible for the care of an individual. Pay for performance is uh, an idea where 
you would reward hospitals and doctors for better performance in terms of a variety of output measures. Bundled payments uh, would involve, rather than paying for each individual test for someone with diabetes, for example, you would pay to treat a diabetes patient and then adjust the payment up or down depending on how you do on a variety of outcomes measures. Um, hospital readmissions. One of the saddest uh, experiences I have had over the past year or so was visiting a leading hospital chain in the United States. Uh, we have a problem in that 20% of Medicare beneficiaries are, who are discharged from the hospital are readmitted to the hospital within 30 days of being discharged. No one would want that to happen if it's at all avoidable because this is not an enjoyable experience. Hospital systems have succeeded in reducing readmission rates through nurse interventions and various follow-up uh, measures and then concluded that they couldn't afford to continue those practices because the reduction in readmissions meant that they were not earning the fees on the readmissions and they simply from a financial perspective could not afford to continue those practices. That makes absolutely no sense and if you want a little paradigm of what's wrong, microcosm of what's wrong in the US health system, there you go. So we now have uh, something that tilts a little bit against th that tendency, uh, penalties for very high readmission rates and there will also be penalties for hospital acquired infections, all of which are kind of very much starting points. They are not the end point and I'm going to come back at the very end to what that means from a policy perspective. Perhaps the most important things that the legislation does in terms of changing payment systems is create a, a variety of entities that can act automatically. They can act without the, new, uh, without the need for additional legislation. And I'm going to end up in a minute talking about why that is so important in the U.S. context. But we have two important institutions that are created under the new law that allow action without legislation. The first is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation through which a lot of these things that I just mentioned, bundled payments and accountable care organizations and what have you, will be piloted. And then the Secretary of Health and Human Services can move to national scale with them if they appear to be promising without the need for new legislation. And the, the latter part is particularly important. Perhaps even, perhaps even more importantly, there's a new entity called the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which frankly has a tremendous amount of power on paper because it is given the task of reducing cost growth and improving quality through a variety of measures. Uh, I'll give you an example in a moment. And the important point is it puts forward the proposals to do that. If the Congress ignores them, they take effect. If one House of Congress votes them down and the other one does, uh, uh, doesn't, they take effect. Both Houses of Congress vote the proposals down. The President vetoes that legislation. They take effect. This has a huge amount of default power. And I'm going to come back again at the end and talk about why that is so important. So what do all these measures do? So you have all these things in the health bill. Uh, what do they all do? Now what's interesting is if you listen to the popular description, basically the way the bill is described is it was all about coverage and it did almost nothing on cost. So it was great in terms of uh, addressing on insurance and expanding coverage, but it did almost nothing to affect the long-term cost trajectory. I'm going to show you in a moment that on paper that's simply false, but the important question is how did that perception come to be? if it's not actually true. 
And I think there are a couple of explanations. And these reflect, frankly, mistakes that uh, the administration made that may have been necessary in order to get legislation done, but that had huge costs in terms of the popular perception. The first issue is that first impressions matter a lot. And first impressions on this bill were formed during the summer of 2009, when the only bill that was in the public domain in the United States was from the House of Representatives. And in the constant struggle between cost and coverage in health reform, the House bill was legitimately seen as tilting way towards coverage. The theory of the case was the final bill, well, that the Senate bill would be much better on these things than the House bill, and that the final bill would be much closer to the Senate bill than the House, than the House bill. Uh, so don't worry, the final bill will be a lot better. And the truth is, it was. So for example, I just mentioned the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which is one of the more important components uh, from this perspective. That wasn't even in the House bill. Another important component, which I haven't discussed here, which has to do with uh, trying to reduce private insurance costs over time through an excise tax, also was not in the House bill. Nonetheless, uh, that almost doesn't matter because everyone's impression was based on that first bill that was out there where those components really weren't present. And so it was, I think, a legitimate critique to say that first bill didn't do very much. The final bill does a lot more, but that almost doesn't matter. The second issue involves uh, campaign versus the Congressional Budget Office. It is easy in a political campaign to throw out big numbers. It's much harder when you're facing uh, scrutiny from the Congressional Budget Office. And in particular, I think basically uh, there is no health care policy that exists, period, that the Congressional Budget Office would say significantly reduces health care costs because of the complexities involved. Basically, that doesn't exist. So there was always going to be a hard adjustment from campaign rhetoric, which was promising huge reductions, to CBO scoring, which is much tougher. And that transition was not managed as well as it could have been. And the result was people, I think, uh, thought that the bill basically didn't do what was promised. I note, by the way, compare what I'm about to show you, which does suggest some significant cost reductions over time, not the end-all, be-all, but something, to what CBO said about the Ryan bill, which I just showed you. The Ryan bill was a huge increase. Relative to that, the Affordable Care Act comes across as a hugely efficient cost-cutting machine because at least it, it points in the right direction by the same institution's analysis, CBO. So let's actually look at the, the actual numbers. If the, now, I need to immediately say this is if the legislation is fully implemented. And it is worth pausing and recognizing that in, a significant question surrounds whether it will be fully implemented. But that's a much different question than whether it does anything if fully implemented. So I'm answering only the question of if it's fully implemented, what does it do? And we're leaving for the final section, whether it will be final part of my talk, whether we'll actually fully implement it. So let's look at what it does if fully implemented. Uh, one way of seeing what it does is to compare projections of Medicare costs before and after it's enacted. This is only for Medicare where a lot of the cost reduction components were focused. And you can see the 2009 report before uh, the bill was passed and the 2010 and 2011 reports after it was passed being dramatically different. In fact, the upward trajectory for Medicare costs by themselves significantly changed as a result. 
This is from the CMS actuary. I'll, I'll skip over this. The second part of the analysis is to say, well, okay, that's only for Medicare. But you're also adding all of these people to the insurance roles, part of which uh, will involve additional federal expenditures. So what about overall health care spending by the federal government, not just for Medicare? And the answer there is the addition of people to the roles will initially raise costs, but ultimately costs, even including the new people insured, are projected to be lower than under the current trajectory, all in federal health expenditures. The crossover date is projected to be 2028 by the Congressional Budget Office. And then the final part of the analysis is what if you add in revenue? So there are significant revenue parts. So what if you're looking at the overall fiscal gap? What does the legislation do to the overall fiscal gap? And again, we can do sort of before and after. There's some other small things that change, but basically the whole delta between 2009 and 2010 is driven by enactment of the health legislation. This is from the Congressional Budget Office. I think what you can see is that before enactment of the health legislation, you have a rising, pri rising primary deficit over time. After enactment, if you fully implement, and again, I want to come back to that assumption, but if you fully implement, that primary deficit is basically eliminated. A very substantial reduction in the long-term fiscal gap as a result. One way of characterizing that is the IMF, which has adopted a bit more conservative assumptions with regard to full implementation, suggests that the health legislation could reduce the long-term fiscal gap in the United States by 2 to 2.5% 2 of GDP. That is relative to an underlying fiscal gap of something like 8. So even under sort of some skepticism about how fully it will be implemented, you're reducing maybe the, implement uh, the long-term fiscal gap by maybe a quarter or so. But let me just end on the following thought, because all of that assumed that we will fully implement what's in law. And what that raises is the very important question of what's happening to the political system in the United States. Because we are effectively becoming two nations politically with a highly polarized uh, political system. And rather than going through this, let me start with this chart. This is basically uh, votes in the House of Representatives. The red curve is for Republicans. The blue curve is for Democrats. I think the key thing is if you look at the 1960s, you can see there's an intersection of those two graphs, or those two curves. Some Republicans would vote with Democrats. The most conservative Democrats would vote with Republicans. There was at least some overlap. By the 1980s, that overlap has been reduced dramatically. And then today, it's basically gone. So the question becomes, why is this happening and what can we do about it? Perhaps the most common explanation in the United States is congressional redistricting. The reason this is happening is we have gerrymandered our congressional districts. We've drawn them in a particular way that uh, leads uh, to safety in congressional uh, re-election prospects and more polarization. Now, I should immediately say if that were the primary cause, it would at least be an addressable problem because you could change the laws and the rules involving districting. Unfortunately, this does not seem to be the primary driver of the polarization that I'm showing you here. Because, for example, if you look at the House and Senate, in the House that redistricting is a very salient thing. In the Senate, it's really not because we have not redrawn state lines and senators are elected on a statewide basis. 
And you can see that the increase in polarization is almost as large in the Senate as it is in the House. And it's now at all-time highs in both, in, both, in, in, in both parts of the Congress. So it would be kind of surprising if redistricting were the primary driver and were infecting the Senate also. So if it's not that, what is it? I think we now have a growing body of evidence suggesting that what's happening is Americans are increasingly moving into politically segregated neighborhoods. Democrats are moving into Democratic neighborhoods. Republicans are moving into Republican neighborhoods. The blogosphere and the TV news uh, cycles reinforce that. And every piece of social psychology literature that I've seen suggests that when you put like-minded people together, they go like this. Even people who claim that they are or believe themselves to be quite sophisticated. So if you look at, for example, judges, and you look at the voting pattern of Republican-appointed judges versus Democratic-appointed judges, when you put Republican-appointed judges together, they get more extreme. When you put Democratic-appointed judges together, they get more extreme. When you mix them, their voting patterns become more moderate, as just one example. Now, what's the evidence for this residential sorting? Let me show you two graphs on counties. County lines in the United States have not been redistricted. There are about 3,000 counties in the US. And what I'm going to show you is how counties have voted in presidential elections. Here is 1976, the United States broken down by county. The dark parts of the country swung one, hard one way were landslides either for the Republican candidate in 76 or the Democrat as a metric of a polarized county. The lighter, air, the lighter counties in the country were politically mixed. That's 1976, that's 2008. Basically, the light areas of the country are dramatically disappearing. If you look at a more extreme measure than this one, uh, in about 25% of the American population now, more of the population lives in a polarized county relative to the 1970s. My conclusion from this is the thought that we are going to overcome this easily, that all we need is Republicans and Democrats to work together and become friends, is unrealistic that we are in, a, in for a period of deeply polarized politics for an extended period of time, and that rather than just banging our head against the wall against that fact, given that we're not gonna force people to start moving into different neighborhoods and we're not gonna turn back the tide on technological change in the blogosphere and the, and the media, rather than banging our head against that fact, we're gonna have to learn how to live with it. And learning how to live with it means that we are going to have a lot of legislative gridlock, given the system we have in the US, even more than normal. And so we need to pay a lot of attention to designing institutions that will produce better outcomes in the face of legislative inertia, because we're not going to have a lot of legislation. The Independent Payment Advisory Board that I mentioned is one example, where gridlock does not impede progress, because the proposals from the IPAB take effect by default. We may have another example as part of the debate over the debt limit in the United States, which is occurring now, because there may well be a backstop fiscal trigger created where if the Congress does not act in the future, automatic spending reductions and automatic revenue increases take hold. If well designed, that's another example of using legislative gridlock to our advantage rather than to our disadvantage. And let me just close by saying 
many of the long-term problems that we face in the United States and elsewhere, from rising health care costs to our fiscal trajectory to climate change, are bumping up against this core problem. So the more time and attention that we can spend both analyzing its cause, but then more importantly, after we have some degree of confidence in the analysis, analyzing how we can continue to function in its face, the better. And that leads me again to close on, I think perhaps the most important things that were done in the health bill along the cost and quality component were the measures that were very hard to include, the Innovation Center and the Independent Payment Advisory Board in particular, that recognize this and try to still allow us to evolve towards a better functioning health system in the future despite it. Thank you very much and I'd be delighted to take some questions. Well, I have to say that was an absolutely brilliant lecture. Um, I mean, I learned. <laughs> I had many, many questions myself, but I, I, I'm going to take this opportunity to open up to the floor. To uh, I believe there's roaming microphones around. So, uh, uh, can I ask you when you uh, when you make uh, put your hand up if you want to ask a question? Can you announce who you are and keep your questions relatively short, so we have plenty of time for people to ask questions. Okay, so yeah. Young man in the front. One question, sir. Do you think that the health care reform is influenced by Barack Obama might be struck down as unconstitutional for breaching the First Amendment as they're creating exemption from, for the English from insurance, thus discriminating against people of Well, I'm an economist and not a lawyer, uh, and so I always uh, sort of step into areas that I don't feel confident uh, about quite reluctantly. Uh, I would be, it's not impossible, but I would just be from a political economy perspective surprised if, uh, what's the right way of putting it? There seems to be good arguments that can be made on both sides of the legal issues surrounding uh, the health bill. And given that, I would be surprised if the Supreme Court decided that it would be wise to step in so forcefully to, on one side or the other, in other words, to strike down the legislation. If it were a slam dunk, uh, that's one thing. There's no way that you can argue that it's a slam dunk against the legislation. And given that, uh, look, it's not impossible, but I, again, I would be surprised if the Supreme Court decided that it was wise to, in, on a close call, overrule the Congress. Question over that. Thank you for your speech. Um, my name is Emily Schwartz. I'm a master's uh, student here at the LSE and also a former Senate employee. Uh, my question for you is more of a political one and just what do you think the administration should take away from its, the long, long hard fought battle of the health care reform and, and you personally, what do you think is the biggest lesson to be learned politically from it? Well, I think there are a variety of things. I, um, I should have said, uh, anyone who's interested in, in, in more of this, uh, the next issue of Foreign Affairs, I decided it was time to sort of do the 7,000 word version of this, so I, I did. And part of that includes some of the lessons. I think some, I mean, you can separate a, a variety of things. I mean, one is uh, just t tactical issues. And I tried to mention a couple of, along this dimension of the, 
There, there were substantive holes, including the medical malpractice one, and then there were tactical decisions that may again have been legislatively necessary, but that I think had significant cause. And then of course there's the broader question of the state of our political system today, and that's sort of what led me to uh, thinking about how polarized and misleading some of the debate became led me to try to delve into the polarization literature a little bit more. And uh, on the residential segregation, by the way, by political party, there's a new book, or not so new, a couple years out, out called uh, The Big Sort, which documents uh, the sorting that has been occurring by political neighbor by neighborhood. And uh, I guess indirectly, that's one of the biggest lessons that I took away, which is that the heated debate over health reform led me to delve into that in a little bit more detail. And I think this is a much deeper structural problem facing the world's leading economic power at this point. And so it's something that everyone should care about. Because if policy is stultified in the US, uh, the whole world pays the price. And I, I think that's where we are right now. I can't question over there. Thank you. Um, Malik Gull, I work in um, areas around co-production. You mentioned that um, high cost are to, um, the, the high cost cases, and the high costs essentially get generated when people are in the system, and providers decide what interventions they're going to make. Um, you touched in one sentence on the whole idea of prevention and wellness before they actually get into the system. Yeah. And I think if you look at um, uh, uh, particularly countries which have a lot of um, community or collectivist approaches to healthcare, interventions are much more successful in those countries than there are in countries like Europe or America where it's very atomized kind of societies which we have. What are your reflections on building the whole kind of so social capital of economies where churches, mosques, temples and communities take much more ownership over healthcare before they actually get into the system, thus reducing cost? Well, look, uh, it is very clear that a variety of health behaviors are strongly affected, not just health, but a variety of behaviors, including health, are strongly affected by your peers, by your social network. Um, in fact, uh, there is evidence in the U.S. that uh, uh, obesity is very strongly affected by whether you have obese friends or not, because it then drives a variety of behavioral patterns. So it's not directly uh, the same thing as community-based approaches, but uh, even in the United States, which is more seen as more individualistic, if you will, there are very clear social effects that dominate uh, in particular areas, and, and in, in, especially among groups of friends and colleagues. Um, I look. I think the key question is: we have. There's no doubt that health behavior very significantly affects health outcomes, that beyond, more importantly than the health care interventions themselves. Uh, the question, at least for a US policymaker, is what specifically can you do to affect them? And uh, this is, I think, a very important problem. I didn't touch upon it as much because I have less clue what policymakers should do. But just as a metric, I was talking with some other folks about this earlier today, as a metric of its importance, the gradient in mortality rates by socioeconomic status, uh, the, the widening of that gradient is really truly deeply disturbing, uh, both in the UK, although folks in the audience can correct me, but my, 
My understanding is the most recent uh, set of data may suggest a little counter trend there. But for the U.S., just a huge increase in the gradient in life expectancy, basically, where we haven't, we we effectively have not been experiencing an increase in life expectancy at the bottom of the socioeconomic uh, distribution in the United States. It's been flat, and all of the increases have occurred in the middle to the top, and they've occurred disproportionately at the top, and that is significantly affected by a variety of behaviors, including uh, smoking and obesity and exercise and uh, to some degree, access to health interventions, but I think a little bit less so on the on the final category. Key question is, what do you do? I mean, there there is a dramatically expanding literature on behavioral economics in healthcare, which I think is very exciting. So, you know, putting the fruit at the front of the cafeteria line instead of at the back uh, significantly uh, boosts fruit consumption. Uh, my favorite finding is that for middle-aged males in the United States. Putting fruit on the same uh, shelf as beer <laughs> seems to have a significant effect. Um, but there are all these there are all these examples where how much we exercise and what we eat is very significantly affected not by how hungry we are but by how things are framed and presented. I mean, the best example I don't know if you all have seen this, but the best example is uh, the experiment where they put people in a in a lecture hall like this, they put a movie up. They gave, uh, they served stale popcorn, so no, no one in their right mind would want to eat this popcorn. And they they randomly allocated large versus small buckets of stale popcorn. And the people who were given large buckets of stale popcorn ate a lot more stale popcorn than the people who were given small buckets of stale popcorn. Again, suggesting this is just mindless eating. You're presented with more stale popcorn, you eat more. Actually, my favorite part of that experiment was, of course, it was an experiment, so everything was free. So one, one guy walked out afterwards and, and went up to the attendant and said, uh, this popcorn was stale, I'd like my money back. <laughs> <laughs> but So there, there are all these interesting uh, examples of uh, removing small impediments to better health behavior. But the question becomes, what policymakers can do as opposed to, I mean, the cafeteria example, that's a corporate or university or someone else making the decision. It's not a policymaker making the decision. So bottom line is in those more individualistic approaches uh, or countries, uh, there is a lot that can be done. There's a growing body of literature on the effective, uh, on what's effective and what's not. But it's not entirely clear to me that it's primarily a policy question that's appropriate for federal policymakers as opposed to uh, other levels of decision makers, and that's what makes things difficult. But there's no question it's crucially important. I just have less clarity on what should happen. Okay, so question here at the front and then one right at the back. Um, Paul. Paul Wallace, I work for The Economist. It seems to me there's an unanswered question which you yourself raised in your talk, which is if you bear down on Medicare and Medicaid through the steps which you outlined, you're still not dealing with the system-wide uh, cost rises. And so, as you yourself pointed out, you know, you're pressed down on them, but the cost pressures will reassert themselves and feed back into the state finance system. Right. So. Uh if all one were doing were reducing reimbursement rates, um, I would be quite concerned that all you were doing, again, is dealing with you're pressing on part of the balloon and it's going to uh, result in, in just a reaction in, 
another component of the balloon. I should have mentioned there are hundreds of billions of dollars in those kinds of reductions. That's not the reason I didn't really harp on those or focus on them is they are subject to that criticism. They are in that first component of simple price reductions. For the other structural changes where you are trying to orient towards quality and outcomes and change the orientation, both on information flow and on financial incentives. I think the theory of the case is that Medicare is big enough, and in fact only Medicare is big enough, to drive change in how healthcare is practiced overall. So the classic example that is given is the shift to DRG payments in the 1980s. Medicare changed to a fixed payment per inpatient hospital stay. Uh, in the early 1980s. The incentive, therefore, was, as an example of this, was to shorten hospital stays for Medicare patients because you were getting paid a fixed amount and you wanted to, you know, it didn't matter whether they stayed five days or four days, but your costs were affected, so you tried to shorten hospital stays. The result, though, was to reduce hospital stays for everyone because fundamentally uh, the shift to DRG payments were, was both mimicked by private insurance companies and it affected how hospitals practice medicine. So I think the theory of the case is private insurance companies are not large enough, they're too fragmented, to drive this themselves. They're also uh, a, a bit reluctant given the backlash from the managed care experience during the 1990s. Medicare in any case is such a large player in the health system that if uh, without it being an active leader, you're not going to get very far in this transformation. And uh, in a sense, given those two observations, it has to be Medicare leading the way. And then if you combine it with the polarization point, you're left with the conclusion it has to be Medicare leading the way, and you better think hard about how you can have Medicare doing that without everything running through the Ways and Means and Finance Committees in the United States, because that's a road to not particularly inspiring outcomes. But I think the bottom line is, the theory of the case is that if you significantly change the way Medicare paid for healthcare, you would change the way healthcare is practiced. Okay. Um, you mentioned that it's difficult to find something to do um, from a policy perspective to change how people behave. Um, how about taxing food that's bad for you, you know, providing more incentive for um, effectively trying to do what you did with uh, cigarette consumption? Is that more difficult because the, it's more difficult to identify what are the bad things for you? That's the key problem, which is, uh, so the, look, Cigarette taxes have been very effective in reducing smoking, especially among uh, teenage smokers. Um, there was some discussion of a so-called Twinkie tax, so a, uh, a tax on caloric content. I think the problem, and in fact someone again in the audience can correct me, but the version that applies in the UK to certain kinds of foods, there was, you know, as an example, a debate between about whether Pringles qualified as crackers or pretzels. Was, am I getting that right? So, I mean, what? Okay, thank you. Yes. So the point is that, that, that that's just one illustration of the difficulty, unless you're going to do literally a calorie tax, so across the board, once you start doing subcomponents of food, uh, the administrative part of this becomes very challenging. Even, be, even in part because we're still debating, I mean, there is, I think, a growing body of literature that... Uh, even natural sugar, so the fructose that's in, let alone high fructose, but that just fructose period is a significant detriment to health. And so are you going to start uh, taxing just on caloric content or are you going to add a fructose tax? 
that that tries to take into account the fact that for any caloric uh, level, uh, the higher the fructose share, the the more damaging it may be. There's no doubt that uh, orienting towards uh, low calorie, uh, high nutrient food is hugely beneficial, and I think there's also compelling evidence that uh, caloric restriction extends life, even though it's painful to do. But the but the but the but the question becomes: How do you actually? I mean, if people do not want to do that voluntarily, it's very hard to come up with a tax system that's going to significantly affect uh, their behavior. What seems to be much more uh, easier to do than uh, the tax system, because the tax system is fraught with the rigidities that come through that kind of policy process, is the intervention, the behavioral responses, where instead of, I don't know, taxing the Twinkies, you put them, someone else is deciding, not a federal policymaker, to put them on a lower shelf or a higher shelf or whatever distracts attention more, and that you can get a significant res behavioral response through those kinds of interventions. Okay, so we have quite a few questions. I might take a couple of questions at a time, sure. just so everybody gets a chance to ask. So there's a question here, and then gentleman in front. Yes, uh, my name is David Duvall. I used to work at the Office for National Statistics. I'm now retired. And um, you talked uh, about an impression uh, that uh, we had, and I confess I certainly had, at the time that the bill was debated, uh, that it was going to do the good job of extending coverage, which many people, including myself, supported, but would do very little for, for cost. Now, you produced a graph, uh, a copy of which, uh, or something very similar I've got here. And this one graph was produced uh, by the Medicare uh, actuary, and I'm sure you've seen it, uh, because he said that the, uh, uh, although you said you were going to turn to the question, return to the question about whether these costs uh, savings were actually going to be met. Um, uh, as you well know, since you were responsible in, in one of your former jobs, the Congressional Budget Office and the uh, Medicare uh, trustee, uh, trustees have to produce results which are based upon the assumptions as they're given. And they do not comment about whether these assumptions are realistic or not. Well, the, as you well know, the uh, the uh, so uh, you're chief actuary. Question, because we have we have okay. limited time. The chief actuary said said that these were very unlikely to to take place, and in fact, the results turned up to be the results of the higher graph, which uh, which you which you showed. So that rather than having a low uh, cost savings, you reverts to higher to a higher graph. So could you just comment on sure, that? Sure, let me do that just quickly because this is a very important question. Uh, first, actually, when the chief actuary uh, produced an alternative projection, I want to come back to the rationale behind that, it was not the higher curve. And instead, if you look at his uh, suggested alternative, uh, still a significant reduction. You basically have something like 60% of the reduction still taking effect. So there's still a meaningful effect. Uh, you're absolutely right that uh, he raised significant questions about whether we would have the political will to fully implement the reductions that are embodied in the legislation. Um, I actually, it's interesting, let's take, I'm going to pause on one example that's often raised as not going to happen. So there is an excise tax on high cost private insurance plans that is scheduled to take effect in 2018. 
In the final legislation, that 2018 date, initially it was 2014 or 2015, and then it was delayed to 2018. So part of the skepticism is, oh, come on. We're going to roll forward to 2017, and that's going to get repealed. Just as an example of, we'll never do this. And what's interesting, actually, is if you look at the history of delayed implementation, so something that's enacted now to take effect out in X years, it's much better than you'd think. And so you've got that history. You've also got the point that if you tried to repeal something in 2017, assuming that we still have a deep underlying fiscal problem and pay-as-you-go rules that apply, you'd have to offset the revenue somehow so it's not the easiest thing to do or waive those rules. And perhaps most importantly, I'm out talking to CEOs all the time. Let's say, that in, let's say you even put a 50-50 probability on that particular provision being repealed. As a responsible CEO, you're still worried that it may bind. And so what mo most of them are doing now is they're starting to redesign their plans now to avoid being hit by the tax should it take effect. And of course, to the extent that more and more CEOs do that, the political desire to repeal the tax is eliminated. And then people say, well, but that means it doesn't raise any revenue. And here the irony about, uh, just to pause on this example as, as one microcosm, the irony is actually most of the revenue from that high cost insurance plan was assumed to come from companies redesigning their health plans to make sure that they were not hit by the tax and therefore having more taxable wages and less tax preferred health benefits. And so to the extent that firms redesign their plans ahead of time, you actually collect the revenue earlier than expected. So bottom line, you're absolutely right that Rick, that the chief actuary uh, posed questions about whether the legislation would be fully implemented. I guess my responses are twofold. One is uh, even under his suggested alternative, there still are significant effects. And then secondly, I think this really comes down to that's a different question than the way it's often been presented, which is, will we have the political will to do this? I think that's an important question and we should be confronting <coughs> it head on, but it is worth separating that from even if we did that, it wouldn't do anything, which is, I think, the impression that's often out there in the ether. And of course, there's a little bit of tension between that impression that it wouldn't do anything and we're going to waive the rules anyway, because what's the point of waiving them if they don't actually do anything? Right. Uh, thanks very much for your speech again. Um, jumping off from the U.S., I understand you are yep. U.S. focused, but uh, especially to lesser developed uh, parts of the country of, of, of the world, like you know, Central and Eastern Europe, Asia, and so on. Do you think that there is a single solution, or at least like a framework of, of where to start in um, in, in both reducing cost and also securing that the quality of healthcare is going to increase. I don't know, like um, uh, more insurance to people, uh, increasing salaries, or even decreasing salaries, or I don't know, uh, reducing tax budgets and so on. You know, it's interesting. I, I no is the answer, um, but uh, I, I and I put up one slide on the cross-country comparisons. I'm sort of skeptical of. Uh, a lot of the cross-country work just because I think so many things vary across countries. It's why I'm more focused on the variation within the United States where at least you've got a single payment system, you've got a single structure. You still have huge amounts of variation and to really drill down on that as opposed to uh, a lot of the uh, attempts to control for everything uh, that differs between countries. So I'm, I'm I, I don't feel like there is a 
perfect answer for every country. It will depend a lot on the question earlier about uh, the sort of more communal versus individualistic approaches, the tax structure. I mean, there are just so many different things that vary across countries that, uh, and, and, and the United States has a big enough problem itself to, to really just try to focus in on, on that. Okay, uh, so. We're not making progress here. No, we're not. <laughs> we have to aggregate a little bit here. So let's okay. take this question and the one behind. <laughs> uh, hi, my name's Andrew Shelton. I'm a healthcare consultant in the US and in the UK and working in both systems I know that getting providers to change their behavior is, is quite difficult and I'm yeah. just wondering if you could just speak on if there are a few novel approaches in the bill to uh, change incentives because you mentioned changing provider incentives but I didn't hear much about it. Okay, the one, be one behind. Emmanuel Uigo, LSE Ideas. I was wondering if you could talk a bit on migration matters because as I understand it, the United States has a fairly large shortage of doctors and nurses, but at the same time, it also has a fairly restrictive policy on hiring overseas doctors and nurses. Are there some policy suggestions that you could give to hopefully reduce costs in this particular respect? Okay, so uh, first on the provider incentives. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of things that are trying to orient the financial incentives facing doctors uh, and hospital systems. But one of the things that I think is fascinating, we were talking about this this afternoon, is even in an individual hospital, uh, simply exposing doctors to intensity rates, to the variation in intensity rates, has a significant effect on behavior in a way that has not been done sufficiently because the IT systems have not been in place in many of these hospitals. But in major hospital settings, exposing doctors to your way off the norm here, just from a embarrassment slash professional norm perspective, uh, does in, in a number of settings have a significant effect. So that, that's sort of one dimension. The other dimension is changing their financial incentives because it makes, it makes no sense to financially penalize a doctor or a hospital. I give the example of the readmission rates, but for doctors also, to the extent that they succeed in making their patients healthier and thereby reducing the intensity of services provided through the health system, they are penalized financially under the current system. It makes no sense. So we need, I think it's clear wh where we need to go, exactly how to get there uh, is not clear. And this is one thing, this is going to be evolutionary. It's one, it's one reason why I think all of the evidence on technological advance and, and how to approach complex problems like this is not to bet everything on one approach, but rather to try lots of different things and then figure out what's promising and have the system evolve towards that. Because when you try to figure it out ahead of time and bet everything on one or two approaches, you almost always get it wrong. And so it's better to throw everything against the wall, see what's promising, and see what's working, and then let that develop. And I think that's basically the theory of the case behind the legislation. Now on doctors, um, I wouldn't say that we have too few doctors in the United States. I think we have too few primary care physicians, uh, but I don't think we have too few doctors overall. And the second issue is that it's not clear, even if we did, that generating more would reduce healthcare costs because um, a lot of the evidence suggests that part of the reason for this variation uh, is that uh, demand is uh, 
stoked to meet available supply. So when you have more doctors and when you have more hospital beds in an area, uh, you get uh, longer hospital stays, lower uh, thresholds for being admitted to the hospital, and so on and so forth. So uh, I would certainly suggest, and there are some small provisions, there's not very much being done, but some small provisions to tilt a little bit more towards primary care physicians, but I'm not sure that the problem or the core problem that we face is lack of medical professionals per capita in the U.S. Okay, uh, one question here, one question here, and then take uh, the lady in the middle as well. Um, hi, um, <clears throat> my name is William Wong. Um, Peter, just after listening to you, I, I seem to think the current NHS reforms in England are a lot less complex than the picture you presented. <laughs> well, England's a smaller country. Uh, but more seriously, I want to draw on your personal, personal example where you say you had a family matter and despite your PhDs, so on and so forth. It seems to me that there lacks a comprehensive system of patient governance where not only patients but citizens like us are empowered to make informed choices. It's all very well to have a lot of choice, but making informed choices is another matter. I don't get impression from what you described, if you could say a little bit on that. Uh, but more importantly, whether you think informed choices could lead to greater competition within the regulatory framework and thereby actually reducing long-term healthcare costs. As an economist, what's your perspective on that? So, to, to, uh, okay, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, we'll take the last one and then we'll... Hi, um, my name is Kirsten. I'm a pre-med student um, from the States. My question is, um, I know you talked about tort reform and said that it's not really um, making that much of a bearing, you said, with tests or um, surveys that have been taken. But my question is, um, you mentioned that, like, excessive testing is a big problem for Medicare, like the cost of testing and, like, running all the tests. But uh, I've worked with a lot of doctors um, over the past two years, and uh, the reason they run a lot of those tests usually is because they don't want to get sued, so they run every single test possible so that they've expended every option. Um, so maybe like indirectly it might be causing more. Is that, has that been taken into consideration, or is, it just, is the survey looking at pure how many people have been sued and what it's cost? So on, the second question, on your question first, uh, actually, so I am uh, more in the camp of the folks that you were working with, that this is a larger that an important determinant of behavior of those tests than the literature suggests. Um, because I think the literature misses a key point, which is even in the most restrictive tort areas of the country, you still have the customary practice norm. And that's the fundamental cause of why doctors are doing what the doctor down the hallway is doing, even if it's not particularly necessary or well-informed. Um, on the question of informed choice, I would uh, two things. First, I skipped over the debate in the United States over comparative effectiveness research, but the fact of the matter is, as a consumer, you need that research. So what's interesting is that has become a highly politicized effort. In some sense, it shouldn't be, because regardless of your broader vision for uh, the healthcare system, if you favor consumer-directed health, you should be in favor of comparative effectiveness research so the consumers have the information to know whether, I don't know, that MRI is or is not a good idea to pay for. And yet that's not, uh, that is not what's happening. This has been very politicized. Um, the second thing I'd say is there are examples. So for example, uh, Gunderson Lutheran Hospital in La Crosse, Wisconsin, 
that uh, insists on advanced directives. That is a voluntary document where you tell uh, the, the hospital and doctor whether at the end of life you want all out or you want to kind of uh, die peacefully and with a less intense approach. And uh, basically, if you're admitted to that hospital, uh, you have to fill out this kind of form. It goes into the electronic records, electronic medical record. And they have been claiming very substantial cost reductions uh, from that kind of approach. The irony is, and I think there are a variety of other uh, studies suggesting that advanced directives do help to reduce healthcare spending. The irony is that is a form of consumer-directed healthcare. You are identifying the healthcare you want in the future, but it's not something that the consumer-directed uh, advocates actually embrace. It may be more effective than the conventional form of consumer-directed healthcare. Um, but so yes, there is promising research that uh, advanced directives as an example of uh, informed choice uh, do matter. Uh, and then I think on specific, that's sort of a broad uh, finding. And then on specific procedures, frankly, for better informed choice, you need a lot more uh, information on what works and what doesn't that is currently lacking. So even if you're in favor of that vision, we need to support the public good of comparative effectiveness research. And uh, yet that's not really uh, where the political debate is today. Well, on that point, I mean, uh, we're great fans of evidence-based policy in all areas, so I have to concur with the last, the last few. And I'd like to thank you, Peter, for a really excellent talk and uh, interact with the audience. I'm very sorry everyone has to ask all their questions, but uh, um, email Peter or uh, have a quick word of them afterwards. Uh, I can't guarantee he'll respond. You're going to get uh, his email address now. <laughs> anyway, thanks again, Peter, for a great, great talk.